0: A very good morning. It's 16 minutes past eight. This is Money Talk with James Ross. And joining me to discuss the headlines and what's going on in the news at the moment, Andrew Farris, CEO at Ecognosis Advisory. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. And let's say say also good morning to Drifa Evans, head of APAC Macro Strategy at State Street Global Markets. Good morning, Drifa. Good morning to you. Uh, Nice to have you both on the the show, and uh, I suppose a whole lot of nothing yesterday uh, with the Fed uh, not changing rates, although an expectation of another rate hike before the end of the year. Dweefo, are you seeing that as important, worrying? How are you looking at it?
1: Well, they they alluded to it, but they didn't necessarily confirm that there was going to be another one. I mean, the markets have been pricing out another rate hike for quite some time. We actually think it's probably unlikely that they go again. Uh, Although, to be honest, the the probability is not too far away from a coin toss. It's it's about 30%, 40% chance that they go in November. Uh, We'll see what the data says over the next couple of months because the Fed does look to be quite data dependent at this point. Much will depend on oil prices, but um, I don't think it's a certainty that they go in November. Actually, we think they won't. We've seen the last hike. But what they will do is they'll confirm that they're certainly not cutting anytime soon.
0: Bank of England and uh, several other central banks around the world sort of in lockstep with the Fed, would you say? Well, there are some different,
1: <clears throat> there are some different trends in inflation at the moment, although um, it's, it's the oil price trend over the last couple of months that has really now started to uh, put some pressure on headline inflation once again. Well, I guess what we're seeing is a little bit more concern on inflation, stickiness of inflation within Europe. So, ECB, some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, again, are forced to continue the rate hiking cycle. To be truthful, they were slightly slower to begin with in terms of kicking off the hiking cycle. But there does look to be stickier inflation in Europe than elsewhere, which reflects a number of things regarding, you know, administrative prices and, 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 mm. and uh, the strength of the labour market and all that. So it's not so much in lockstep. I, I think that certainly North America seems to be slightly ahead in terms of the cycle relative to Europe. And, of course, in Asia here, we're on a slightly different plane altogether.
0: Uh, Andrew, China keeping its interest rates unchanged, but for probably different reasons, right?
2: Well, the different reasons, of course, that inflation is not an issue in China at all. Uh, the second reason is, is that uh, traditionally the Chinese prefer to use monetary policy in a very, very slow and careful way. And with inflation, let's say in the last six months, virtually ranging anything between zero, a little bit below zero and a little bit above, <laughs> above zero, uh, you can go with 25 basis points, uh, cuts or increases in interest rates. In other words, one has to put it always in the context of where real interest rates in China are, and they're really quite low. And, of course, with very low inflation rates, you cannot have big changes in interest rates. And since the Chinese in general... Prefer to go very slowly, given that they have a very benign inflation. You know, I don't expect uh, I don't expect any movements or, or very few movements in interest rates.
0: Beijing uh, saying earlier on this week that there are more uh, policies coming uh, to focus on uh, the economic issues at the moment. Uh, are we making any gains as far as the economy is concerned? Is it uh, looking a little bit more positive or still still rumbling away?
2: Uh, Let's start first with the economic uh, policy measures. It depends whether, which, um, let's say, catalog or offer sheet we're looking at, where 30 or 31 or 33 different uh, economic policy measures. And uh, I'm afraid unless I'm missing out something, I haven't seen an actual funded specific policy being implemented. Okay, they are still thinking about this. And uh, there were a few things concerning, of course, the property sector, interest rates as far as mortgages concerned, down payments, uh, and so on. But other than tweaking with the monetary side, not with interest rates, but with the actual rules, we haven't really seen anything yet. Again unless something was implemented and i missed it to which i offer my advance <laughs> apologies
0: <laughs> you blinked and you missed it or maybe not uh we for things moving in the right direction would you say uh, in china
1: oh but at a snail's pace it's very slow isn't it um one of the things that we look at actually one way to try and capture the the, the monetary environment in china is what's known as a credit impulse for the chinese economy and um if we go back um in the depths of history back to the GFC 15 odd years ago, each time we've had a slowdown in China, that credit impulse has been increased in order to support the the, the real economy. But with each subsequent stimulus, it's been lower and lower and lower. And actually, if you look at the credit stimulus this time around, it's actually very, very low. So we are very concerned about growth. Uh, the, the whole world is very concerned about the trend on Chinese growth, but we're not seeing a commensurate reply in terms of a policy adjustment. So in a way, the Chinese are effectively saying we're, not, we're now going to live with lower growth because we cannot really countenance the continuation of the up of debt. Uh, and, and, and we need to um, ensure that we are able to service debt. And because of that, they're just not spending in the same way the stimulus programs are not in any shape or form uh, of a similar magnitude to what we've seen before so it's very gradual there's more to come but the the slowness of it is such that we shouldn't expect a big reaction on the real sector anytime soon.
0: Andrew are the Chinese government more worried about uh, domestic things than they are worried about the impact uh, on the world economy?
2: Oh they should be Um, in other words the the way in which the external sector impacts the chinese economy it is massively overestimated okay the net export the net export now it was exports minus imports okay which is the basic 101 macroeconomic impact on the chinese economy in general traditionally over a 20 to even 30 year period uh I would have been uh, mistaken if I said it added more than 10 basis points for every 100 basis points that the Chinese economy grew. So, in other words, uh, yes, exports fell, but this will have a regional and a sectoral impact rather than an overall macroeconomic impact, which was always traditionally was driven by two things, yon-yon, consumption, and investment. Do we
1: yeah, we've done quite a bit of work on this, and um, it's it's pretty obvious that when when you focus on China as an export economy, that's that's a false argument because it's certainly not. I mean, we can we can do this in, in going back again with, with Andrew's economics one one. We can look at it in terms of basic sort of growth accounting. Uh, that's either going to be household consumption, government consumption, investment, or net exports. Net exports has always been very low. Uh, it's really an economy that is driven pre- predominantly by uh, by investment, uh, infrastructure spending, which I guess is what everyone's expecting now yet again in order to try and drag the economy upwards. Um, it will have an impact. There are cascading effects and the spillover effects to the rest of the region, but that's two-way. That's China as a manufacturing base for the rest of the region. But China's impact in terms of you know, its, its net exports and its export uh, propensity in the rest of the globe is, is actually very, very low relative to what goes on domestically.
2: Oh, Drawer, it's so nice to hear from you saying that because, uh, you know, I've been occasionally felt there was voice shouting in the desert. So China is not an export-driven economy. Hello? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, no, no. China is the biggest exporter in the world. Always forgetting that China also is one of the biggest importers in the world.
0: Yeah. talking about asian economies uh, japan south korea you know obviously still big players and uh, you know south korea very important uh, relationships uh, with china uh and your thoughts about these other asian economies and where they sit uh, vis-a-vis china at the moment
2: well again uh, let's take the famous thing chinese economy slowing down therefore this is going to impact the whole of asia no it won't okay india okay well. Quite a Actually, right now, possibly the most successful Asian economy, growing at about 6%. You know, less than 10% of India's exports go to China. In other words, if uh, Chinese exports were to disappear tomorrow, the impact on the Indian economy is going to be very, very small. Not the same thing with South Korea. Okay, we hasten to add that. So, but, you know, continuously waving the flag that whatever happens in China affects everybody else. It is just not true.
0: And Duifa, your thoughts? Japan, you know, where, where where are we going with the yen at the moment?
1: Yeah, so this, this is reaching an interesting point here again, because um, the Bank of Japan is more vocal than it has been for a while on policy. It usually sits on its hands, uh, and it hasn't sat in its hands over the last couple of weeks in particular. So, Uh, It's the the yen, the the currency is at an uncomfortable level as far as policymakers are concerned. What they cannot yet do is signal anything other than verbal, uh, I I guess, verbal signals of policy changes to come, partly then to support the currency. The challenge that they have is, and this circles back to one of the original questions, the challenge that they have is that if they do nothing on policy uh, and the U.S., among others, continues to hike rates or holds interest rates at a high level for longer, that relative yield differential between Japan and elsewhere in the world will remain very, very wide. And that's an invitation to go and sell the yen. And as it creeps up towards 150 on dollar yen, that's really reaching a level where, frankly, the Bank of Japan Uh, has previously alluded to a lot of discomfort, and we've seen intervention at that point. So the currency is reaching an interesting point. Uh, I expect the comments to continue on uh, an an eventual policy change, but as ever with Japan, we're probably going to have to wait quite a long time before we see an actual policy change on rates.
0: Is there an opportunity there for investors?
1: Uh, there, there, There is on the currency side, if you actually believe that we're on the cusp of intervention. Um, there is also, I think, uh, a role as well in terms of longer term rates in, in Japan because there comes a time when I think yield curve control will just, will, will, they'll have to get rid of that as a policy. So a potential upside on uh, Japanese yields is, is still probably a trade worth pursuing. Um, and also, I, I guess there's also the, the 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 equity side is getting a lot of interest as well on Japan too. Uh, Obviously, Japanese Mm. growth has been under pressure for quite some time, but uh, we're seeing a lot more interest, actually, proprietary data that we're looking at in terms of
2: Japanese equities as well. So there is a lot of investor interest there.
0: Andrew, opportunities and risks for you this week? What what are you seeing?
2: Uh, As usual, I'm sticking to a sectoral approach as opposed to simply trying to divine the entrails of where Mm. interest rates are going. (laughs) Incidentally, I quietly sniggered that the Bank of England says, well, you know, inflation is slowing down. 10 basis points, and that made all the difference. Again, okay. we moved from uh, 6.8 to 6.7 or whatever it was, and that was meditated to stop interest rates from falling. Ah, come on. So, you know, I prefer to do something relatively meaningful, Okay, 6.7 to 6.8, and look at uh, sectors and within sector-specific companies. And my favorite sectors continue to be uh, renewable renewable in- uh, uh, services and renewable uh, um, engineering companies, uh, defense companies, including Japanese defense companies, very important. A lot of money being spent, and uh, last, last but not least, pharma. But pharma very focused on a specific area, and that is long COVID area.
0: Mm. Is that's that sti- that still uh, a, a, an opportunity? Long COVID.
2: Oh, very much so. Very mm. much so. Uh, it is uh, quietly. Uh, uh, beginning to bite into the headlines. Actually, there is very little information, unless you are an idiot like me that spends inordinate amount of time digging it out.
0: You're not but, an idiot, Andrew. Uh,
2: well, uh, you know, I, I, don't want to be, I don't want to be this obsessive people that go around uh, <laughs> dro- drooling in the mountains and saying, you know, the UFOs are, are landing and nobody's paying any attention to what I have to say. But, uh, uh, you know, uh, COVID is uh, spreading at a rate of about 1.5 million a month. Okay, so it hasn't gone away and long COVID is the, is the afterthought, the mm. side effect of, of COVID. So the, the clients, <laughs> potential clients are growing.
0: We will follow it with uh, interest. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Andrew, for uh, joining us on the show as uh, as normal on a Friday. Also, thank you very much to Dwifa Evans, uh, head of APAC uh, macro strategy at State Street Global. Uh, Andrew, of course, is CEO at ECOGnosis Advisory.